Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, we'll be hearing from Dr. Marek Hodakiewicz. Dr. Hodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics and leads IWP Center for Intramarium Studies. At IWP, he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention failed and failing states. He is the author of Intramarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Hodakiewicz, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you once again for having me and introducing me. It's business as usual here at IWP. I hope everyone's well. Today's lecture will be on Russia, revolution and civil war. As always, I'll start with uh, quotes. Nikolai Erdman wrote a comedy in 1928 in the Soviet Union called Suicide. Unfortunately, because of communist censorship, this comedy was never staged so long as the Soviet power was in place in Russia. It was published in the West uh, after some time uh, in 1979, and it was staged in London, I believe, but um, it's quite unknown. It was written in 1928, and during tryouts, uh, during, um, during theatrical attempts to stage it, Stalin intervened himself to take it up in 1932. That was it, until freedom came to Russia in the 1990s. So this is an exchange between a protagonist and other people. The protagonist is a member of the intelligentsia. Aristarch was his name. There was once a compassionate hen that was given duck eggs to sit on. For years, it sat on them. For years, it kept them warm with its own body until the young were ready to come out. Well, the ducklings crept out of their shells. They waddled out from beneath the hen. They grabbed her by the neck and dragged her to the water. I am your mama, the hen squawked. I hatched you. What are you doing to me? Swim, barked the ducklings. Do you see the moral? Voices. Not exactly, not really, no. Aristarch. Who is the hen? Our intelligentsia. Who are the eggs? 
the experience. The intelligentsia sat on them for many, many years. And finally, it hatched them. The proletariat crawled out of its shell. It grabbed the intelligentsia and dragged it to the river. I'm your mama, squawked the intelligentsia. Swim, quacked the ducks. I can't swim. Well, then fly. Is a hen, is a, hen a bird? The intelligentsia asks. All right, then sit. And that is what we have done under lock and key. My brother-in-law's already been inside five years. You see it now? It's a commentary on liberal intelligentsia of Russia, useful idiots, most of them, progressives, who essentially dug their own grave by supporting extremism. And here is a commentary by Richard Pipes, the great Richard Pipes, about the mechanisms of the revolution. The revolution was the result not of insufferable conditions, but of irreconcilable attitudes. The technique of translating specific complaints into general political demands would become a standard procedure for Russian liberals and radicals. It precluded compromises and partial reform. Nothing, it was alleged, could be improved as long as the existing system remained in place, which meant that a revolution was a necessary precondition for any improvement whatsoever. This form of maximalism, that's my commentary, proved lethal for Russia and the Russian intelligentsia. General Max Hoffman, one of the architects of rapprochement with uh, Lenin and his communists, remarked in his, war, in his war diaries and other papers as follows. We neither knew nor foresaw the danger to humanity from the consequences of this journey of the Bolsheviks to Russia. At the time we weighed the matter with as little consideration as the Entente does now. General Max Hoffmann confessed that the Germans unleashed Lenin and his comrades onto helpless Russia, and the Germans had no idea what they were doing. They didn't appreciate the danger. All they were interested in was destruction. So very narrow-minded, myopic, tactical approach. Karl Helfrich, the ambassador of the Second Reich in Soviet Russia between 28th July and 30th uh, August 1918, remarked, in this, at this critical time, the strongest supporter of the Bolshevik government was the German government, although unconsciously and unintentionally. Yet another confirmation. Uh, 
not that among the Western powers there was clear understanding what Bolshevism was and the threats it posed. Let us read the following note of the United States government, Ministry of Japan, of March the 5th, 1918. The government of the United States has been giving the most careful and anxious consideration to the conditions now prevailing in Siberia and their possible remedies. But it is bound in frankness to say that the wisdom of invasion seems to it most questionable. The central powers could and would make it appear that Japan was doing in the East exactly what Germany is doing in the West. The whole action might play into the hands of the enemies of Russia and particularly the enemies of the Russian Revolution for which the government of the United States entertains the greatest sympathy in spite of all the unhappiness and misfortune which has for the time being sprung out of it. Talking about useful idiots at the State Department. Japan was the only feasible solution. It had feet on the ground. It could have moved far into Siberia and created some kind of a, a Russian Republic and protected from the Bolsheviks. Imagine Lenin and Stalin confined just beyond the Urals and Siberia being free. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And here is a quote, and here is a quote from Lenin. History tell, tells us that peace is a respite for war. War is a means of obtaining a somewhat better or somewhat worse peace. This is Lenin's political report of the Central Committee, of March 7th, 1918, extraordinary 7th Congress of the Bolshevik Party. Lenin simply wanted to convince his comrades that a peace with Germany at that particular junction would give the Bolsheviks their breathing spell, and it did. And here is another useful idiot, Georges Clemenceau, the prime minister of France himself, who on October 31st, 1918, remarked, to believe in the Bolshevik danger in those territories of the Intermarium is to let oneself be lured by German propaganda. Of course, it wasn't German propaganda. Of course, the Bolsheviks were dangerous, not just to the Intermarium, but to the rest of Europe and the world. At any rate, in February 1917, a revolution broke out in Russia. Tsar Nicholas II abdicated in March 1917. A liberal republic was proclaimed. In reality, however, the state was paralyzed by the reality of dual power. On the one hand, you had a discombobulated center-left government, and on the other hand, you had a, a central revolutionary Soviet. The situation 
metastasize throughout the entire Russian Empire, the former empire, because the government thoughtlessly dissolved the police and fired all the governors, provincial governors, the state administrative power became either too weak or simply dissipated in time. On the other hand, the Soviets grew everywhere with seemingly unstoppable power. Russia was shaken by strikes. There was a collapse of infrastructure. In the military, we witnessed complete disintegration with a wave of desertions and violence in particular against officers, but not only. Armed fugitives from the armed forces either joined a number of revolutionary orientations or marauder and bandit groups. Many of them returned home to the countryside. There, the peasantry attacked landed estates and their owners. Murder, rape, and robbery became the norm. Fire and anarchy reigned throughout the realm. In November 1917, the revolution entered its communist phase. A Bolshevik coup overthrew the center-left government. The communists seized power. And despite all signs and hope, they prevailed in the civil war by 1921. What remained of the Russian empire was theirs. Their main strike force initially consisted of national Latvian units which had been created within the Tsarist army as separate entities. The Latvians constituted the main, the main spinal cord of the secret police, the Cheka, and of the Red Army. Of course, after a while, uh, the Bolshevik military became enlarged because Lenin called for a draft. And there was also a, a forcible impression of former Tsarist officers as specialists into the ranks of the Red Army. They were treated together with their families as hostages. And their choice was simple. Either you serve the Bolsheviks or you die, and your family too. From the point of view of, uh, from the long perspective point of view, 
it was them. It was the officers who uh, contributed mightily to the victory of the Bolsheviks in the Civil War. Of course, there were very many other factors. For example, generally, the Russian intelligentsia was incapable of unambiguously becoming active in an anti-communist way. One can say that it maintained a distrustful neutrality as far as Lenin and his comrades. And it harbored a hope as far as the abstract idea of the revolution was concerned. In their majority, the intelligentsia preferred to debate and theorize abstractly rather than defend, defend freedom. Richard Pipes blames the failure of the counter-revolution on the non-Bolshevik left. And this is what he wrote, that left the socialist intelligentsia as far as resistance, which having gained a solid electoral victory could act in confidence that the country was behind it. It was doomed by the refusal under any circumstances to resort to force against the Bolsheviks. When following the dissolution of the, of the Constituent Assembly, soldiers approached socialist deputies with the offer to restore it by force of arms. The horrified intellectuals begged them to do nothing of the kind. Such people no one could risk following. They talked endlessly, endlessly of a revolution and democracy, but would not defend their ideals with anything other than words and gestures. This contradictory behavior, this inertia disguised as submission to the forces of history, this unwillingness to fight and win is not easy to explain. Unlike their opponents, the Bolsheviks learned a great deal from these events. They understood that in areas under their control, they need fear no organized resistance. The rivals, though supported by at least three-fourths of the population, were disunited, leaderless, and above all, unwilling to fight. This experience accustomed the Bolsheviks to resort to violence as a matter of course whenever they ran into resistance to solve their problems by physically annihilating those who caused them. The machine gun became for, for them the principal instrument of political persuasion. This is a brilliant insight by Richard Pipes. Squeamish leftists surrendered Russia and the world to totalitarian communism. They unleashed a revolution and allowed it to fall prey to its pathological fringe. Initially, virtually all political options of the Russian Empire stood in opposition to the Bolsheviks. The left generally concentrated 
on political opposition, although some of the leftist orientations to various degree in differently in various regions took place in armed struggle against communism. The most, uh, the, the volunteer army was the most important anti-communist force. Usually it's identified with the right, but in reality, it was an eclectic coalition of people of various views from monarchical through liberal cadets to leftists, including socialist revolutionary. The volunteer army acquitted himself, itself with utmost bravery. It nearly reached the threshold of victory over an overwhelming, in terms of numbers and material, units of the Red Army. Unfortunately, because the so-called whites were unrealistically wedded to the slogan of one and undivided Russia, the volunteer army, just like all other white armies, was incapable of securing assistance for itself from the rebellious minority nationalities of the empire, in particular, the Poles. In addition, the volunteer army and other armies did not enjoy an unequivocal and sufficient support by the West. According to Viktor um, Sukhanitsky, during the war, no legal, moral, or other immaterial arguments counted. Only military efficiency did. The allies were ready to support anyone without regard to his political and social opinions who wished to and was able to fight against the Germans, but only as long as he genuinely did this. Polish determination to take, take an active part in the war with Germany was the main argument for the post-war restitution of the Polish state. It was similar with Bolshevik Russia. Initially, the allies deluded themselves that they could push the armies of Lenin and Trotsky against the central powers. In addition, most didn't really understand what communism was. Naturally, among Western leaders, there were individuals who superbly spotted the communist threat. For instance, Winston Churchill, but they were exceptions. Generally speaking, the West observed the Bolshevik experiment with rather with sympathy. This does not only concern the leftists and liberals. In extremists, influential Americans, including at the White House, naively considered the revolution as a positive phenomenon and the Bolsheviks as Democrats. However, after the peace of Brest-Litovsk, 
they began looking for an alternative. Let us stress that none of the so-called Western imperialists wanted to partition Russia. What they cared about was to maintain the Eastern Front. Therefore, they reluctantly decided to launch a limited armed intervention as well as a limited granting, a, a limited support for anti-Bolshevik movements. Intervention at first had very limited and local aims. The allies, so there was no strategy really, the allies feared that all the material assistance, in particular war material, deposited in the Archangel and Murmansk would be handed over by the Bolsheviks to the Germans. Therefore, British-American expeditionary forces arrived in the north. By the force of inertia, those units, along with white forces, including the Poles, undertook active protection of the war material warehouses against the Reds. But the Allies never switched to a strategic offensive. And after a short while, they simply withdrew. This was very similar to the British intervention in the Caucasus. Uh, the, the inclusion was made to protect Persia and India. After inept and limited armed demonstrations, the Allied left the region for the Bolsheviks to loot. This is precisely what happened with the intervention, Allied intervention, in the south of Ukraine. First and foremost, however, the Entente supported the grassroots, the grassroots eruption or actions of the Czech Legion. The Czech Legion abandoned its armed neutrality in favor of anti-Bolshevik struggle when Moscow attempted to disarm its soldiers and either intern them or at least retard their transit through Russia. The Legion took over the Trans-Siberian Trans Railroad and rendered its support to leftist elements among the anti-Bolsheviks. Later, however, when the counter-revolutionary rightists overthrew the power of anti-communist leftists, the Czech units turned against the whites, the rightist whites, and helped Lenin to prevail. 
Meanwhile, however, some encouraged Japan to invade, to use the forces of the empire of the uh, of the uh, rising sun to recreate a front, the Western Front. This was first and foremost a British idea. The Japanese, in fact, landed in Vladivostok and controlled Eastern Siberia. They were ready to push west. They were opposed in this myopically, mainly by the Americans. They, the, the latter dispatched their expeditionary forces to Siberia to thwart the Japanese offensive. After a while, the United States and Japan withdrew from the Far East, handing power over to the Bolsheviks. Meanwhile, the French intervened very gingerly uh, only and mainly in, in uh, the Ukraine. After encountering first sign of a more of more serious resistance from various uh, red forces, including the Bolsheviks, anarchists, and bandits, the French military simply retreated. To be fair, the retreat occurred because of the mutiny of the French naval units operating in the Black Sea. The mutiny was crushed and uh, the Navy sailed home. Only British units, British Navy remained behind. They implemented a blockade against the Bolsheviks and they checkmated the Red Fleet. They supported the whites with their fire power, in particular in, on the Crimean Peninsula. And later they assisted in evacuating the remnants of the counter revolutionaries in 1920. The Royal Navy played a much more energetic role in the Baltics. It even seriously attacked the Bolshevik fleet, including the very port at Kronstadt and its naval base. Even to a greater extent, uh, British naval vessels assisted in the struggle of the Estonians and Latvians against the Germans. Unfortunately, the aid of the whites from the side of the Allies was insufficient in most instances, except as far as the Balts are concerned. Further, unfortunately, Russian anti-communist forces proved incapable of converging, of joining together, and they suffered a total defeat in 1921. Although a variety of partisan units continued their guerrilla war against the Reds 
into the 1930s, in particular, the so-called Muslim Basmachi in Central Asia, the, Bolsh the Bolsheviks managed to defeat the majority of former Tsarist ethnic minorities and re reintegrate them into their empire. This was yet another disappointment of the revolution. Generally, after 1917, essentially everywhere there were rebellions of national minorities. It seemed that the Russian prison of nations disintegrated and for all nations and people, there dawned freedom. The communists for a long time cynically maintained the fiction of supporting such things. They tended to back minority nationalisms in Russia itself, but they also propagated a general class struggle, including within those minorities. In addition, they encouraged the minorities to join the structures of the emerging Bolshevik state. This was undertaken thanks to two tricks. First, there was an action of promoting minorities within communist institutions. Second, the Bolshevik state included in its framework minority state entities where um, uh, the local Bolshevized leadership was in power. Sometimes uh, the leadership, sometimes the leadership consisted of uh, Russian colonists, in particular in Central Asia and the Caucasus. But oftentimes, however, the leadership stemmed from various leftist options of native nationalism. This is referred to as national Bolshevism. These national Bolsheviks, to maintain power and to uh, prevent the return to the government of traditionalist and counter-revolutionary elements, surrendered, surrendered to the Reds, to Red Kremlin, and assisted in enslaving, assisted the Reds in enslaving their own people. If such forces, collaborationist forces, were insufficient, then Moscow would simply dispatch fraternal, fraternal assistance, which would then organize such collaborationist forces. And in many places, it, was, it would indeed create them under the guise of establishing a new independent Soviet Republic in the name of self 
independence of nations, national sovereignty. And such a power would then overthrow the native structures of government, including leftist and even revolutionary, but not Bolshevik ones. And then such a power would subordinate all of this to the Kremlin. That is precisely what happened in uh, the Ukraine between 1918 and 1919, Central and Eastern Ukraine. We should not forget the elements of grassroots violence. Because meanwhile, on the way to the victory of the revolution, Lenin seeked, Lenin provoked in an anarchist manner to rob that, that which was robbed. This universal proclamation expressed also, expressed both the strategy and the tactics of the Bolsheviks. The more people covered themselves in blood of the innocents murdered by, by the revolution, the more of them supported committing crimes in the names of progress. And the more had no way back, they couldn't retreat from the revolutionary path. And uh, the more of them had to defend the gains of Bolshevism. People implicated in murder, rape, and robbery simply were afraid of the return of the forces of law and order. The more there was destruction, the more everything could be then rebuilt in a new communist way on the ruins of the old system. Lenin encouraged this. In addition, the communists were convinced that the only way to survive for the regime to survive was to unleash the forces of destruction and destabilization both within and without. To become irreversible in its fury, the revolution needed time. Once the fire became universal, it couldn't be extinguished. Therefore, Moscow decided to pursue a compromise with Berlin and Brest. This was supposed to give the Kremlin a breathing spell to defeat the whites, introduce communism in Russia, and to spread this genocidal, democidal ideology throughout the world after the anticipated collapse of Germany. 
for a long time, the only power capable of crushing, crushing Bolshevism in Russia was the Second Reich. It was capable of executing this at least until August 1918, when it suffered its greatest defeat on the Western Front. Afterwards, that was not the case. The Germans simply missed their chance to save humanity from the Red Plague as one of the most moderate German politicians, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Richard von Kuhlmann, averred. As far as, uh, as far as Russia is concerned, the best way to carry on is to do nothing. As far as Russia was concerned, the best course of action would be to do nothing. The military and Kaiser Wilhelm agreed with that. And despite cyclical threats against Lenin and the Red Army, they stuck to the letter of the peace of Brest-Litovsk. This is another one, aside from Nazism, horrific example of German dis uh, strategic decisions that were to cost humanity so dearly. Just as in other issues, for example, the application of, uh, uh, of uh, poison gas on the battlefield or carrying out unrestricted submarine war. Germany deluded itself that the ruthless policy of supporting the Bolshevik power would bear fruit in the form of the victory of Berlin in World War I. The end result was absolutely opposite to what was intended. And Europe and the world paid a horrible price for Germany's strategic mistakes. Thank you very much.